I remember before I was married, I talked with another couple who had just gotten married a little bit uh, before us, and uh, I asked them, well, you know, what's it like? They said, well, we, we feel like we're playing house. And they weren't, of course, I mean, they were married and they were all the way in being married, but I did find out that actually when I got married, it did feel a little bit like playing house. And it's hard to sometimes register that, yeah, this is a real thing and I'm in it for good. Um, The reality is, I think it's easy to play church also. Or at least to have church feel like we're playing at it. We go through the mornings and, or we go through the motions. We we get the family out of bed on Sunday morning. We argue about the way Dad's driving on the way to church. We park. We practice our smiles. We walk in like everything's great. That's one of the ways that you play. Or maybe you play church during the week by you know, going to a variety of church meetings. Maybe even call someone on the phone. Uh, you do what you're supposed to do. And you put church on autopilot. One of the ways that you play at church. So I suppose if I was asked the question maybe a little uh, the opposite way, how do you know, how do you know that you're not playing church? What's the difference between playing church and the real thing? Well, here at New Life Church, we try and answer that question at least once a year. In the fall, gearing up to go back to school, uh, we generally will do some sort of uh, series of messages to sort of explain Uh, what we're trying to do here and what some of the distinctives are of New Life Church. And um, I don't know if that's exactly the difference between playing church and real church, but uh, I suppose for us it might be. So the next few weeks, we'll be focusing on some of the ways that uh, New Life Church is seeking to accomplish our mission uh, and we want to—we seriously do want it to be more than just playing church. And so, the next uh, really four weeks are going to come from what we call our brown booklet, uh, and uh, really from the center of it. This picture should be the same as that one up there. And these booklets—if you didn't get one, say at a new to new life class or when we originally published them—you can grab one on your way uh, out uh, this uh, this morning. But we're going to try and uh, at least open some of the, uh, the, the ways that we're doing church and the things we're trying to do at church so that it's obvious and not uh, people don't just have to guess at it. That's what we're trying to do. And so we're going to try and cut through the clutter and get to the point. And so what is the point? What is the point of a church? Well, I'm going to say as simply and as clearly as I can, the point of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The point of the church is to remember 
and to live the gospel. I suppose you could turn it around and uh, say that when we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will create the kind of church we long for. The gospel will separate us from playing church and point us to real church. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Because if I'm going to talk about the Bible, it's probably only fair to, or if I'm going to talk about the gospel, it's probably only fair to start off by saying what is the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, what are we talking about? So Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to begin reading the introduction or the first few verses. And as I do, I want you to notice. I want you to notice how long, this is a letter, Romans is a letter to a church at Rome, that's how it got its name. So it's a letter to a church, and I want you to notice in this letter to a church about church, I want you to notice how long it takes him to get to the gospel, okay? Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Didn't take very long, did it? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So there, as he gets right to the gospel in uh, talking about church, we see that the gospel produces the kind of church that we long for. When people believe the gospel, God develops in them the kind of uh, change that He wants to have happen in their lives. He develops them into the kind of church He wants them to become. And so, from Romans chapter 1, what is the gospel? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Well, the gospel simply means good news. It means good news. And so, when you hear somebody talk about the gospel, you need to hear them that they're trying to talk about good news. And I hope it sounds like good news. So if you think back, Uh, say, pre-text notification, pre-TV, pre-newspaper, pre-telegraph. How did people get their news? The news would come the old-fashioned way. It would come by people carrying it personally. And and the the picture that I think they have in mind here when it talks about good news is that of uh, a herald who comes running from a battlefield to report to the king about how the battle went. 
And generally, if they saw him running from far away and you know, coming closer, they could see by the way that he ran, did he have good news or bad news? Did we win or did we lose? And the runner would come and herald the news that yes, in fact, the army has won. We've got good news. And so, he became a herald or he would proclaim the good news. Which is exactly what I think Paul has in mind. That someone who proclaims the, new, the good news of Jesus Christ proclaims the news that Jesus has won. To be separated from the God, for the gospel of God like Paul was, you're separated to tell the news that God has done in Christ what the world needs. And so Paul sees himself as a herald of that good news that God has won. And we'll see more about that victory in a moment, but I want you to think about what it means to really believe the gospel, to center your life around the gospel. Because ultimately, if what we don't want to, what we don't want to talk about is that church is the gospel and something else. The church is the gospel and mission, the gospel and children, the gospel and politics, the gospel and you fill in the blank. Because that essentially puts the church in, you know, two centers. It needs to be the, the good news of Jesus Christ at the center and all the other activities and relationships of the church orbit around the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. And so it's the gospel that we have at the center. And if you think about it, how do I know if I personally am believing the gospel? Or how do I know if a church is believing the gospel? One of the, one of the ways you might do that is to think about, and I, I'm not encouraging anybody to do this right now, but if you were looking for a church, okay, if you're going to go somewhere and look for a church, what would you look for? Or if a church, if you were going to, if you're going to look for it, it would tell a little bit about what you are looking for. Are you centered on the gospel? It would also tell a little bit about the church. Are they orbiting around the gospel or not? And one of the ways that you could think about that would be, I like the church because, fill in the blank, because the pastor's funny or relevant or cool. Okay, good thing you don't have that problem here. But if it's centered around the pastor... That's an issue. Does the church dispense good advice? Or do they dispense good news? There's a difference between good news and good advice. Good advice says, largely from, and again, this is a, largely from the messages, I want to give you to this morning five ways that you'll conquer anger. I want to give you three tips for better communication in your marriage. I want to help you, you know, learn how to fill in the blank. Give good advice. Okay. I don't want to give bad advice here, but I want the church to focus on the good news rather than the good advice. You might ask yourself, do they open the Bible? Because that's going to be a good clue that yes, if they open their Bible, they're going to get closer, aren't they, to the gospel. But I've seen even recently that you can open your Bible and miss Jesus. Even when talking about Jesus, you can miss the good news. Because I've, um, I've seen people 
talk about Jesus and then, or talk about the Bible, talk about Jesus, open it up. And it talks about, you know, the, the food in the first century and the context and all the commentary that goes around the Bible and, ne- and miss the fact that God has done in Jesus everything that you need to be right with God. And so we don't want to just see commentary. We don't want to just see advice. We want to do they open the Bible and see what God has done through Jesus to reconcile the world to himself. You might go to church and like the music. And you might say, oh, I'm, I like this church because of the music. And the music is fine. Music can come and go. But do you respond emotionally to the music is one question that's, a different, that's different than the gospel question. The gospel or the music needs to be the avenue or the vehicle that carries the message of the gospel in a way, hopefully, that you will remember it and uh, sing it to yourself in the shower later in the week. Maybe you look for a church and you're looking for the right program. Do they have the men's program, women's program, children's program, youth program? Do they have the programs that I'm after? Which tells me then you view church as you know, just a set of activities. But also, if the church was publicizing that, they would see it the same way and, and organize around their activities instead of organize around the message that Jesus is risen from the dead. As though the power is in the method or the meeting, not in the gospel. I heard just this week too about a, somebody that recognized some of these things in the church they were part of, that the, the church did have a sort of a self-centered um, pastor and it was all centered around him and somebody said well why don't you just leave and they said well because the kids like it so do the kids like it is one of the questions people ask about the church of course and I I, I say that because I do hope the kids like it but if the kids like the church that's off-center I want you just to I I bring that up because I want you just to draw back and look at the bigger picture and say, okay, what's the 10-year projection on that? It's probably not going to be that great because the church is, is missing the center of the gospel. And so what we're really hoping is that you recognize that the message of the church as well as the relationships and activities of the church involve good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and rose again. And everything circles around that. Well, verse 2. The gospel of God, set apart for the gospel of God, which He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scripture. So what we see about the gospel is that God has been talking about this good news the whole time. The entire Bible that you hold on your lap has the gospel. Some of us have been accustomed to shrinking the gospel to like one or two verses. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a good verse. Okay, That gets at the heart of the gospel, but it's not the whole gospel. This tells us that God has promised this gospel beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And so I would maintain that this good news begins on page one and ends at the last page of your Bible. 
So the entire Bible is telling the story of the gospel. If that's the case, of course, it begins at creation. When it begins at creation, it tells us the good news that God has made us. That God made us then, created us with a purpose. He created us to be in relationship with Him. And that's great news. Because you're not off on your own. You have a reason that you are here in this world. And God has created you for that. That's the first chapter. If you were to look at the second chapter or move through the story, you recognize it's not very far in. And um, what we call the fall happens. Adam and Eve reject God's rule and reign. They reject His relationship with Him. And they set themselves up as the final authority. And that fall, the fall is, a, is the, the movement of God's story that presents an obstacle to God. Because after all, I think in the gospel, God is the hero of the story. And the hero then all of a sudden has an obstacle because he made us for a purpose which we disowned. He made us for a relationship with him which we reject. And so how then is God going to win us back and re-inject meaning into the world? I think one of the things that you would also maybe understand about this fall is that when we fell, we broke. Just like the lamp off uh, the the, um, end table. When it fell, it broke. And all of creation broke along with us. I think we all think that it would be great to have you know, happy, pain-free lives where personally we're doing great, our family's doing great, where there are no tornadoes or hurricanes or fires or earthquakes. But we live with this brokenness and so does all creation. And the pain remains. And one of the things that happens is that we then live in this quest to eliminate the pain. We live in this quest to fix the brokenness. And so some of the times we'll try all kinds of things that might do it. Maybe education will do it. Maybe uh, money will do it. Maybe just have, you know, having a great family will do it. Or maybe if you can't fix it, you try and medicate it away with uh, alcohol or maybe with pornography or whatever the case may be, you try and fix it or medicate it away and the pain remains. And what we'll find is that we can't tell ourselves a different story and have that fix the real problem. That this story of the gospel that God tells through the Bible, there are lots of substandard or uh, alternate stories that you could tell yourself. And they will ultimately leave you empty because their fix, their Redeemer, is not good enough. Which brings me to the sort of the third movement or the the high point of the, the story, and that is Jesus. Because all this leads up to Him all along the way. God was sending Moses and David. He was sending prophets and priests and kings to, to, to help uh, his people live with him, and they failed. Until we find that Jesus comes and God rescues us.
from our rebellion and gives us again a reason to live. So he does through Jesus everything necessary that we might be reconciled to God in that broken relationship is restored. God does everything necessary through Jesus so that the brokenness in our lives might be rebuilt and put back together. So that we can go back and back and back and drink at the well of the gospel and have that brokenness repaired. Rather than finding unsatisfying things uh, that won't fix it and trying those or numbing things that will deaden us to the pain but won't eliminate it. And then as God tells this story through Scripture, the final uh, episode or the final movement of this story is what we call restoration or consummation. It's the part of the good news that is really talked about throughout the Bible where it all ends up with God um, restoring things to how they ought to be. So that you don't have to settle for okay. Because in the end, God uh, comes and reestablishes a new heaven and new earth and wipes away every tear from your eyes and He will be your God and you will be His people and the world will be restored. And see, one of the things, one of the ways that you can tell if you're believing the story of the gospel, if that's really the center of your life, or if you're buying some other story, is by asking yourself the question, where do I get my hope? What am I hoping for? And if you're hoping that somebody gets elected, or if you're hoping that the economy takes a turn, or if you're hoping that you can someday afford this house or get this education, if you're hoping in those things, you're hoping in lesser stories. So our hope is ultimately that Christ will return and restore the world. Well, that is really the story of the Bible, and it tells us that the Bible, uh, the gospel is told about in the Scriptures. Verse 3 then says, the gospel is concerning His Son who is descended from David according to the flesh. The gospel is about Jesus who is the Son of David. And so, again, one of the things that your antenna should be up for, and I'm telling you this because I want your antenna up for it every Sunday here is does the message center on Jesus, who was a real person, who lived in history, who was descended from David. And being descended from David was the rightful king who would sit on the throne that God promised to David forever. In other words, Jesus is the rightful king, and the Scriptures bear witness to Him. And the story that God is telling through the Gospel is the story of the enthronement of the rightful King. That the true and rightful King won back His kingdom by dying on a cross and rising again. And it will one day be restored to Him completely and fully in the consummation. And so the Gospel is about Jesus returning as the true and rightful King to claim what is His own. 
And then if we're getting closer to the point by saying it's written about in the Scriptures and it's about a real human person named Jesus who's descended from David, then verse 4 says, it was, de- it was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So this gets you right to the point of the Gospel. Because the gospel is ultimately not merely about Jesus, because people talk about Jesus all the time. But the gospel is about his resurrection. So the good news boils down to, if you, if you want to do it this way, boils down to an empty tomb. If the tomb is empty... And you've got to figure that out, right? If the tomb is empty, then, then Jesus is who He said He is. And you're going to have to come to grips with who Jesus is. Because ultimately, the fact that Jesus rose from the grave is the centerpiece of this good news. There is not good news if Jesus remained dead. And so in history, was Jesus a real person? Was the grave real, uh, really empty because this true and rightful king won his throne back on the cross and through the empty tomb? And then verse 5 says, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And so, it goes on to say then that the result of, and this is the thing I want you to see, that you've got the gospel being written in the scriptures about a real person named Jesus who's descended from David, who died on the cross and rose again, and it is through him that you receive grace. This grace is another Christian code word, you might say, for the good news. It is good news that you get from God what you do not deserve. That's grace. And it's through Jesus, it's through His death and resurrection that you receive the good things from God that you don't deserve. And that leads us then to the obedience of faith. So the gospel comes as grace to you and then works in your life to produce the obedience of faith. And so while a church can take many forms, and I'm glad that it does, the gospel must be the heart of the church. It's the message of the gospel that acts as a compass not only for the message, but also for the activities and the relationships in the church. And so I want to take a couple more steps. I don't want to just stop here because the gospel is good news and it is about Jesus, but it is active and makes a difference in the life of a Christian and the life of a church. So what difference does the gospel make? So go forward about, what, 10 verses to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. See, Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so what he, what he tells us here very simply is that the gospel comes to you, the gospel that Christ died for you and rose again, comes to you with power, the power that is necessary to change the world and to change your life. The good news has within it a dynamic that energizes and moves things, moves you into action. The work of Christ on the cross, when you believe it, was meant for you. And, you, and when you believe that it was meant for you, and you trust that God will do for you all that He promises to do, it will change your life. It changes your life because it's powerful. It's powerful to be forgiven. It's powerful to to be reconciled with God, to know that you can live with no condemnation, to be loved by God, to be united with the resurrected Christ, to have all of His righteousness uh, just given to you for free, to receive the Holy Spirit, to know that you have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. To receive a new heart and be born again. To be placed within a spiritual family. To know that you then are empowered to love and to be loved. And there's, there's more that I could say about what the gospel does, but, but you must know that when you believe it, it's not like believing a math equation that 2 plus 2 is 4. That's true, and you can believe it, but that doesn't change your life in the same way. Because it doesn't come with all of this, uh, all of the, the, the power that God has exercised in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. One of the, one of the really cool things that's, the Lord's doing in our church is that uh, there are going to be some people baptized after this service today. There'll be some other people baptized next week at the uh, outdoor service. Um, actually, at our Wilsonville campus, there'll be people baptized the next week. So the Lord's doing a good thing. And every one of their stories is different. And the way that God has worked in every one of them is different. But the reality is that it is the grace of God that has come into their lives and has changed them in a variety of ways, but He is at work powerfully in each person. And so He is making them into the people He wants them to be because they have really bought in and believed that, yes, in fact, I get it. And I commit myself to the fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose again for me. Well, the gospel makes a difference because it comes with power. But let me just connect the final dot, and that is how does the gospel come with power and create life in the church? The gospel is the foundation and the root of the church. To see this, I want you just to turn over a couple pages to Romans chapter 12. So Romans chapter 12, we've seen what the gospel is, we've seen that it comes with power, 
but I want you to see what the power does in the life of people when they are together. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So there's an appeal that is made, and the appeal is made by the mercies of God. I want to make sure that you see that. And because it is ultimately, that is the foundation. That is the, the root from, from which the, the tree of the church grows. It is the spring from which uh, all of the uh, energy and water of the church flows. And the mercies of God is basically another way of talking about the fact that God uh, sent Christ to, to live, die, and rise again. You, you have received mercy from the Lord, and because you've received mercy, there is a response that would be natural and expected, and so he appeals for that. Now, I just want to suggest to you that what this means is that your salvation is not transactional. And to transactional, when I say salvation can be seen as transactional, I think many of us stumbled into that on accident. So by transactional, what I mean is you need to do the right thing. You need to pray a prayer. You need to walk an aisle. You need to raise a hand. You need to do this, whatever this might be. Maybe some of you be a good person. Go to church. Be religious. You do this then God will pay you for doing that with salvation. There is some sort of transactional thing. And we ask the question, did I do the right thing? Did I say the right words? Was it what I needed to do? And see, that is a clue. Hmm, I was looking at it like it's a transaction. And so I just want to warn you that Really, it's much more relational. It's much more of me buying into what God is doing in my life and in the world and believing it uh, as a lifestyle rather than, oh, did you do it? Did you pray the prayer? Did you trust Christ? Did you do the transaction? That's not what we're talking about. Because if it were transactional, you would expect God to treat you like this, wouldn't you? And many of us, I'm afraid, do. That if salvation was transactional, you'd expect God to say, because you got such a good deal here, okay, all you had to do was pray this prayer, right? And you get eternal life. Because you got such a good deal, you need to get busy and pay for it on installments now. You need to get to work. And I'm afraid a lot of us treat it that way. Like, yes, you somehow you got to get saved by grace, but then you got to get busy and do better as a Christian. And that's not it at all. Because this, the, the phrase, the mercies of God, uh, represent another way of talking about this good news. But they also make the connection that the good news is not just the initial moment when at the beginning I must have trusted Christ. The mercies of God, he's appealing to them uh, based on the mercies of God because 
the ongoing life of a Christian, the ongoing life of a church requires ongoing faith in the mercy of God. And since you believe the good news, since you believe this gospel, the power of God is resident within you to generate the kind of life God wants you to live. And when we get together, the, the gospel is resident within us to produce in us the kind of church we hope we will have. The first thing that you may have noticed is that I, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. The first thing you would notice is that it does uh, invite a level of commitment or devotion or worship that connects you with God. He invites you back into that relationship that, that, again, is not casual and distant, but close and deep. And when it does that, in, in verse 2, it says this, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what happens when that power is resident within you, it draws you into this relationship with God, which produces this um, countercultural life. It produces a life that no longer you know, wonders what people think or wonders if you'll be accepted by the world, but rather invites you into a relationship with God and it changes you from the inside out so that you long to do the will of God. Then if you continue um, reading in chapter 12, which I intend to do, and I'm going to use the rest of my time to just read to you all of these things that spring from the Gospel. Spring from the mercies of God. So in verse 3, it starts out, for by the grace. Grace sounds a lot like the Gospel. And that grace generates humility, a willingness to serve, and the abilities necessary to do that service. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Okay, that right there is a good place to start, isn't it? Wouldn't you like a church where no one thought of themselves more highly than they should? But then what happens in verse 4? As in one body we have many members, the members don't have, all have the same function. So, though many were one body in Christ, individually we're members of one another. We, we've been given a family together. And having different gifts, that, or having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, uh, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes with generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who, who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. In other words, God has put us together, and we're different, and that's good, and you need to use what's different about you to serve other people. 
And not only do you need to, you have been given the power and the energy and the strength to do that because of the mercies of God. And all of that is good, but it continues to get better. Because the gospel then creates people who long to follow in the way of Jesus. To live as citizens of His heavenly kingdom. And so the rest of this chapter describes that kind of community. And so I don't want to talk about it, I'm just going to read it. And I want you to listen, though, I want you to listen in this way. I want you to listen thinking, wouldn't it be great if the church was actually like this? Wouldn't it be great if the church actually did this? Because what this describes is the kind of church I think all of us would love to be part of. It's the kind of community where we would love to belong. And see, it's easy for us to think that if we came to church and we'd find people who were just like us, that'd be great. I promise you it wouldn't be. If we come to church and find people who are being changed by the gospel, equipped by the gospel, empowered by the gospel to do what's here in Romans 12, that would be great. And we would gather around a risen Savior and we would all benefit from the grace that He gives us. So look at verse 9. And I'm just going to read the rest of it and let you just soak in and say, I really hope the church can become that. So verse 9. Let love be genuine. What a great place to start. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. This is the kind of church that I want. One where people aren't wise in their own eyes. They're not worried about associating with other people who aren't like them. They live in harmony with one another. They weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, pray without seeing. All of that's the kind of church that I hope for, a humble, loving, forgiving, rejoicing, praying, serving, honoring church. So how do you get that? That's the big question. That's the question of the morning. I think you get that when you continually go back and draw from the mercies of God. It is the mercies of God that produce that kind of life in the church. Because it's a life of faith. I'm believing in what God has given, the mercy that He has given to us. The Christ died for sinners like me. The Christ rose again for sinners like me. And when I believe that gospel, it comes with the power necessary to produce the Christian life that doesn't think of myself more highly than I need to, that doesn't act in ways that are inappropriate, but rather produces the kind of church I'd really like to be part of.
And so it's my hope that you'll be as committed to that as I am and that you'll be committed to the gospel as the means of building that kind of church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do trust in the words of Jesus that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We do trust you to build that kind of church here for our sakes, for the sake of our community, that we might enjoy you today, that we might enjoy the death and resurrection and all that accrues to us because of it for all of eternity. And we'll thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.